missions year program, which is a one-year Bible survey. We're going to be taking new applications for that soon. And there's a little flyer for it that looks like this, just on the table in the back. And so if you want to grab one of those or talk to me, would love to tell you more about GTS. And hey, um, before we get into the Word, I need you to just do one thing for me, if you can. I know everyone's looking pretty comfortable in your seats and your entrance, but everybody just stand up for a second. Can you stand up? Stand up, and uh, I, you know, I'm from Texas, and we like to be close to each other in Texas. And so I can just get you to grab your stuff and just advance like five rows. Can I just get everybody to advance like five rows? And it's okay, we take a minute, you know, you can push seats around, but I promise you I don't have COVID. I got tested two days ago. I have a negative test. I'm safe, and so if we just all move up five rows, then I can see your faces, and we can be we can be a little bit close to each other. And yeah, move the seats around as you need to. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. And um, thanks for doing that. Your, you know, your pastors, uh, Pastor John and Pastor Luke, they are uh, faithful brothers. I loved having the privilege of serving with them at Redeemer Dubai. They're a little younger than I am, though, and so their eyesight is better than mine. And so they can, they can see everybody in the back of the room, but I, my, my eyes don't go all the way that far back. So thanks for coming up. I appreciate that. Um, tell you what, I want to I go into God's Word with you and look at 1 Peter chapter 1, but let's pray and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and uh, then we'll do that. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thanks for my brothers and sisters here. Thanks for the opportunity to look at your Word and see what you have to say to us. Father, we just pray that your Spirit would be in this time, that as we look at your Word, that you would be glorified, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I remember when I was 16 years old, I decided one day that I wanted to play the bass guitar. Never played the bass before, never played the guitar before for that matter, but it just came in my mind, that's going to be cool, I'm going to play the bass. And so I had my life savings all ready to go, and so I got myself down to the store. I bought the bass guitar, and I even got the wall mount where I could put it on the wall of my bedroom and hang it up there. So then people come in the room, and they're like, oh, he's the kind of guy that plays the bass. You know, so I, I was all ready to go with my bass guitar, and I, I tried hard. I, I, I got tips from people. We didn't have YouTube in those days, but I found some books, and I, I worked hard to try to learn how to play the bass, and it w- went pretty well for a few weeks. I learned a few little riffs. I could do another one, Bites the Dust, and all that. But... After a few weeks, it didn't get very far. I wasn't really able to be in a band. I hadn't gotten to that point. I wasn't, uh, you know, playing songs. Uh, No one asked me to join their band. The church didn't ask me to come and lead worship, and I just didn't really progress. I I didn't know how. I didn't put in the work that I would have needed to put in to become good at playing the bass. And so in the end, I never became a competent bass player. So I had it up there on the wall for years, and for years it was kind of there, and I kind of kept thinking, like, I'm going to get back into that, and one of these days I'm going to take the bass down and play it, and every now and then I would take it down and kind of do the stuff I knew how to do, but mostly it just, it just kind of hung up there on the wall. It was kind of a relic of the period where I was really into learning the bass, and, but I never did the work that I needed to do to enjoy the full benefit of that instrument. And I know for a lot of people, Christianity is kind of like that bass guitar. It's like the bass guitar because you like having it in your lives and you kind of have some plans to do something with it in the future. And, you know, you're maybe doing a little bit with it right now, but you're really not putting in the work. You're not putting in the effort that you would need to put in to use it properly and 
derive the full benefit from it. Because one of the things that's true of Christianity is that there's incredible benefits that are there. There's transformative effects in your heart and in your life and in your mind every single day. And Peter's going to say that as we go into 1 Peter. He's going to tell these exiled, suffering believers, people whose lives are really difficult, that every one of them possesses not just some kind of vague thread of optimism, but this incredible hope. This transformative hope, he says in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about this living hope, and then in verse 4, it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you, Peter is saying. This is a hope. It, it can rejoice even in trials. This is a hope that can continue proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ even when the whole world is against you. That's the kind of hope we have. That's what Christianity is meant to mean in your life, he says. But, but Peter has a doubt, and Peter's doubt is that in order for Christians to live with that kind of hope, they're going to have to do some work. They're going to have to put forth some effort, and, and that a lot of Christians aren't doing it, just like me with that bass guitar. That's his concern. And so today, our time is short, so our text is two, and so I just want to really focus on one verse. That's verse 13 of this chapter, 1 Peter 1, 13. And um, 1, 13 says this. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. You guys read in the ESV, that's, you have that same translation, preparing your minds for action. And if you have the same Bible I do, I've got a little like footnote number one after the word action. Do you have that in your Bible? And so if I go down and I follow that footnote, and I look in the bottom of my Bible, I, it says here, it says, Greek, girding up the loins of your mind. Do you have that in your Bible? There at the bottom, it says, girding up the loins of your mind. Well, see, what we're dealing with there is, is a metaphor. It's like a word picture, right? So, so the original text, so as Peter wrote it, it says, girding up the loins of your mind. And so then we got the translators, they're translating the Bible, and they said, now hang on a second. They said these, these readers, these people who are reading the Bible in English, they probably don't know too much about girding or about loins or about any of that kind of stuff. And so let's just sort of say preparing the mind for action. That's kind of the, the gist of it. It's the idea, and it is the idea. But I think, let's think a minute about this metaphor Peter is using when he says girding up the loins of your mind. What you need to picture is you need to picture how people in biblical times would have dressed, right? They're not wearing jeans. They're not wearing pants. You know, it's not like that. But they're, they would have been dressed, you know, men would have been dressed in these flowing robes, kind of like the, the kandara that people locally here would, would oftentimes wear. And so they're wearing these, these long garments that are going down to the ankles. And so that kind of clothing, it's light, it's comfortable, it's cool, it has a lot of advantages in a, in a warm environment, but it also has some disadvantages, doesn't it? And the problem with that kind of clothing is it's not suitable for, for moving around, for sports, for, for action. When you need to move fast, you can't have these, these long dresses that are inhibiting you. That's what it's saying. And so what they would do then is if the enemy was, ready, it was getting ready to attack, and they're going to have to get out their sword, and they're going to have to fight. What you do with that long garment is they would gird up their loins. And so what that means is they would kind of gather all the fabric up from their ankles, so they kind of pull it up above the knees, and so now it's kind of all bunched up here, and they'd kind of like wrap it around and tie it off 
and the, the net effect would be kind of like they're wearing a pair of shorts, all right? So it's all kind of tied up up here, so then your legs are free. So you can, you can run fast. You can move from right to left. You're not going to get snagged on something. No one's going to grab a hold of you. You're not going to trip and fall over your own clothing. You can move. You're ready for action. You're ready for war. That's the idea of girding up your loins. And so what Peter's saying to us then is he's saying we're getting ready for war. We're getting ready for war, and, and, and the kind of war we're talking about here, it's not the kind that's against flesh and blood, but it's a, it's a spiritual war. And we can get ready for this war just by meditating on this one verse from 1 Peter 1.13. That's all I want to do today, because Peter is telling us that th there's a battle upon us, and we need, in preparation for that battle, to gird up our loins, not just the loins of our, of our legs, but of our minds. Gird up the loins of our minds. So that's the question this text is asking us, is how do you prepare your mind for war? And we're going to see in the text three answers to that question. Three, we, we, we could say three practices of a Christian who is prepared to make use of the resources that God has provided to live for Christ and advance his mission. So let's see those three. First of all, you need to resist mental weakness. Resist mental weakness. And so, you know, back to this ancient guy wearing the kandara. He's got to gird up his loins. Why does he do that? Why is that guy going to lift up his fabric and, and get it all tied up? Why is he going to gird his loins? And the reason is because he anticipates a battle that's coming. He knows that a battle is coming, and he wants to be as prepared as he can possibly be. He knows that his current clothing is not appropriate. It's not sufficient. His current state the way he's currently ready and dressed, it's not going to work. When the fight comes, he's got to make a change. He's got to do something different. And see, what makes you prepare for something is that you fear the consequences of non-preparedness, right? And that's why you gird up your loins. You, you resist the consequences of non-preparedness. You resist mental weakness. Look at the next verse, verse 14. It says, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's saying that before you were a Christian, something was wrong with your mind. Your thinking wasn't working right. You were, you were ignorant, he's saying, before you were a Christian. That doesn't mean you were, you were stupid, but it means that you thought things were true that were not true. You thought things were not true that were true. There was an ignorance. There was a mental problem with you when you were not a Christian. And guess what? Peter's saying that right now then, now you're a Christian, now you've come from death into life, but right now there's this danger, and the danger is you as a Christian getting sucked back into that ignorance that was true of you as a non-Christian. That's what he's saying in verse 14. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter's saying resist that, resist mental weakness. Because what he's saying is that that, that ignorance... It's kind of our default setting. It's like this, this cord right here, or any other electrical cord. If I get an electrical cord and I, and I straighten it out, well, what does it want to do? If it's been coiled up really tightly, it wants to return to that coiled shape because that's comfortable for it. That's like its, its default form. It doesn't want to be straightened out. It wants to stay coiled up. And see, our minds are like that because we, we have this sinful nature 
that wants to be conformed to the world. And then we have a world that is besieging us and blasting us with non-Christian thinking, whether that's from other religions or from secular media or for entertainment. We have this, this torrent of words coming at us all day long, and those words are like a river with a strong current that's trying to carry us back into this state of ignorance about spiritual truth. That can happen on a macro level, like, like a temptation to stop going to church, to follow a different religion. But it can also happen on a micro level, just on a, on a small, small thing in, a, in just a, an everyday kind of decision. How do I talk to this person? What do I do with this problem at work? Should I act like a Christian in this case, or should I do it the way everybody else does it? Should I do it the way that's normal in this culture and in this place? And see, sometimes as Christians, we forget about this current. We forget that there's this pull on us towards ignorance. And so we think that we're just in this place of neutrality. You know, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you say, okay, here's this seminary professor up here saying seminary professor stuff, but hey, I just love Jesus and I like the church well enough and, you know, all that thinking stuff, I'm okay without that. Maybe some of you think that way. But you need to understand that if that's you, if you're, if you're thinking of yourself as neutral, you're not staying neutral. You're, you're moving towards ignorance. It's like German. I used, to, I used to study German, and so for, for a little while there, I knew German pretty well, and I was reading articles in German and translating stuff in German, and I was doing all right with the German language, but then I stopped. I stopped using it. I stopped studying it, and that was 10 years ago, and guess what's true today? Do I know the same amount of German as I did 10 years ago? No because I've been in a non-German environment. I haven't been around it, and so I have returned to my former ignorance. I know as little German today as I did the day that I started studying it, and that's how, that's how the mind works. We're going to return to our former ignorance. It's saying that non-Christian ignorance, what Peter's warning of us of, it's, it's like an active force. To kind of shift metaphors, we could say ignorance in Peter's mind, it's like, it's like a scary monster. It's like in uh, The Empire Strikes Back. There's the, the ice monster, the wampa that tries to get Luke Skywalker. You guys know what I'm talking about here? We got the ice monster. He's, he's, he's a monster. He's trying to eat him, right? And ignorance is like that. It's trying to get you. It's trying to get you with its claws and bring you into submission and consume you. And see, this, this ignorance monster of the world, which ultimately is Satan himself, it is trying to destroy you. Peter says it a different way in chapter 5. Verse 8, he says, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. It's better than wampa. He's seeking someone to devour. Peter's saying that, that, that our enemy wants us to be mentally weak. He wants to devour us so that you're vulnerable to error, so that you can lose your joy and lose your hope. So what should you do, 5-9? He says, resist him, firm in your faith knowing, he says in that verse, he says, resist him because of what you know. He's saying, don't be conformed to that former ignorance. Instead, resist it. Resist it. You need to resist mental weakness. So if you're going to be prepared for war, that's the first practice. That's the first step. The battle's coming. Don't leave your kandara untucked. Resist that. Start preparing. And so that leads us to this second practice. And the second practice we need to take on is to choose Christian thinking. To choose Christian thinking. Look back at 113. 
Back at 113, you know, so first of all, we're, we're girding up the loins of our mind. We talked about that, but look at the verse. It says, preparing your minds for action, and then it says, being sober-minded. So, so think about that. So you're, you're sober-minded. So your mind's not like a drunk person, right? You're not kind of staggering all around here and there, thinking about this, thinking about that, kind of in this uncontrolled, impulsive way. No, your, your mind's not like that. It's not a drunk mind. It's a, it's a sober mind. It's a mind that's, that's in control. It's, it's doing what it knows is best to do. And so what are you doing with that prepared, sober mind? Look at the verse. He says, you set your hope. You see that? Set your hope. That's the main command in the verse. If we're going to set it up structurally, here's the imperative. Here's the main idea. He says, set your hope. So preparing your minds and and being sober-minded that's how you get to that point but the command is to set your hope he's saying what, what you do christian is you you make a decision to live with hope that's choosing christian thinking and see peter of course is writing to people who have a lot of reasons not to hope they're exiles, they're, they're poor to begin with. Now they're, as he says in verse 6, being grieved by various trials. Later on he talks about the fiery trial that's coming to them. So life, life is hard. But as Christians, they have reason to hope. They have incredible reason to hope. Verse 3 says, by God's mercy, you're being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. Verse 4, he says, you have an inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, he says, you're being guarded by God's power for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then verse 7, he says, you have a faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, and that same faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1.8, he says, you're going to receive as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So so there's hope there. And then he says in verse 6, he says, even those trials are there, even though they're there, he says, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. What do you rejoice in? You rejoice in in that hope, that hope that you have as a Christian. You, You know things as a Christian about what's true, and because of those things that you know, you rejoice even when there's trials. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 8. It says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice. See, there, there, there's two ways to relate to Jesus, to Christian truth, he's saying. He's saying you can respond to Christian truth based on what you see right now, or on the other hand, you can act based on what you believe in your mind and in your heart. And it's the second one. It's Christian thinking. It's the second one, acting on what you believe. That's what leads to rejoicing, he says. And it's those same two options that verse 13 is talking about. It's saying that whatever difficulty life throws at you, option one, the Christian option, is set your hope. Set your hope. Think like a Christian. Remember that imperishable salvation that you have, that that eternal inheritance you expect at Christ's return. Remember that and choose to hope. That's how a Christian deals with today and with tomorrow and with the next day. See, sometimes we think that hope is is just kind of a feeling, and I can't really control whether it's there or whether it's not, but the apostle is saying that for a Christian, hope is something you choose. Hope is based on what is known, not based on what is shown. You see that? Hope is what happens when you've prepared your mind for battle, when you're 
thinking soberly and therefore you're deliberately, thoughtfully choosing to act like what God's word says is true. That's hope. And so whatever happens, you can choose that road. That road is there. You can choose to think like a Christian because you are a Christian. Or there's a second road. That second road is always there. And the second road is to disobey this command. To fail to think like a Christian, you can act like most people do in the culture around you. And what does that mean? That means being conformed to your former ignorance. That means failing to resist mental weakness. That means saying, you know, I don't, I don't see much reason for hope today. Things seem pretty hard and pretty tough today. And, and so I'm going to base my actions and my attitudes and my conversation based on, on what is shown, not on what is known. And see, brothers and sisters, the idea is that those same two options are there every day, every hour, every conversation, every relationship, every ministry. Will you choose to think like a Christian or not? And see, Peter gives more examples of this. Just a few verses down, there's this issue where you've got these Christians They're living as exiles among people who don't know Christ. How should they live? Should they live like non-Christians do? Or should they live with fear of God? Peter says in verse 17, he says, if you call on him as father, i.e. if you're a Christian, here's what you should do. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Well, why? Why conduct yourself with fear? Verse 18, knowing, we could say, because you know, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ. So when that question comes, how should I live today? The Christian is going to answer that question with this mental process that says, now something has happened in my life. I'm, I'm a Christian, and because I'm a Christian, I'm going to think like a Christian, and I'm going to live like a Christian because of what I know, what is true of Christ, what he's revealed in his word. And in the next chapter, there's a, a little bit different question. And the question is, what if, what if you're a Christian servant or you're a Christian employee and you have a, a, an owner or a boss or an overseer that's unreasonable, that's treating you badly, maybe oppressing you because you're a Christian? And look at 2.19. He says, for this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And you say, how do you endure sorrows? Well, you're mindful of God. Something's happening in your mind. You're choosing to think like a Christian, and you're doing that, it says a few verses down, 221, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. A Christian is a little Christ, so a Christian is choosing to think like Christ. And we could multiply examples, maybe just one more, 412. Look at 412, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Why are you surprised? Why are you, why are you going to be surprised by something? And you're surprised because you're ignorant. You didn't expect it. You didn't have knowledge that that thing was going to happen. You were not prepared. But if you are prepared, if you've girded up your loins, if you're not surprised, if you're thinking like a Christian, if you're recalling to mind all that Christ has revealed in his word about this grace to be brought to you, even when you're in this fiery trial, you can set your hope. You can set your hope. And even what he says there in verse 13, 413, he says, even you can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
if you're choosing Christian thinking, even when that fiery trial comes, you're able to rejoice, you're able to be glad because you're setting your hope. You're thinking like a Christian. And with all these examples, Peter's saying that same choice, it's available to us. It's available to us today and tomorrow and next month and next year. But how do you do that? Well, first of all, if we're going to choose Christian thinking, whatever is going on in our lives, in our jobs, in our ministries, first of all, you've got to resist mental weakness. But, but then there's this question. The question is, well, okay, how, how do we, with, with, while we live in a world that has this strong pull towards mental weakness, how do we kind of make this huge leap to instead resist that and say, I know everyone else is going to make this choice like that. I know everyone else is going to go with the flow. I know this is the way 99% of the people in the world do it, but because I'm a Christian, I'm going to do it differently. How do we get to that place where we're ready to choose that thinking that's so different? How do we do that? And that's the third preparation practice here, and that's build biblical knowledge build biblical knowledge, because here's the thing. I used to live in Delhi, India. Anybody ever been to Delhi? Out there, if you've you been to Delhi, Delhi's kind of a crazy place. And so I remember when I first moved there, one night I had this thought, and I thought, you know what, we got the evening free tonight. Really, it'd be fun to, like, try something good to eat, you know, something different we haven't had before. And so I got on my phone. I did some research. I found a place, Google Maps, not too far away. All right, let's go. We'll be back in an hour. So we get in the car, and to spare you the really long version of the story, by the end of the evening, we'd been stuck in traffic, we'd been lost, we'd driven around for an hour because we couldn't find a parking space, we'd been blocked by cows, we'd been hit by a motorbike, we'd had a flying gas canister strike the windshield of the car, and we'd been stuck in a flood from a monsoon. All of those things in the same evening, and it's not really how I imagined the evening to go. But the problem was, I didn't think about the monsoon. I didn't think about the neighborhood I was going to. I didn't think about the traffic. I didn't, I didn't know about any of these things because I was in India, but I was thinking like an American. I was thinking, oh, yeah, like easy roads, easy parking everywhere. That's not going to be an issue. But I wasn't in the U.S. anymore. I was in India. And because I was in India, I needed to learn some things. I needed to build some knowledge about a different place. I needed to make adjustments for a different situation. I, I needed to, to learn some stuff so that I could stop thinking so much like an American and instead be ready when the situation called for it to think like an Indian, to make wiser decisions for that place and that context because I wasn't thinking in the wrong way. And see, in 1 Peter 1.13, when we're talking about girding up the loins of your mind as a prerequisite for setting your hope, that's the kind of thing that he's talking about. Be before you can be in a position to choose Christian thinking, you've got to build some knowledge. You've got to know how a Christian is supposed to think. And so uh, he, he talks about that. Just before a passage, he says in, in 1.10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So it's that same salvation, the one that's going to cause you to rejoice. And he's saying, here, we got these prophets. They've got this Old Testament. They're, they're talking about the same salvation. And how'd they know about it? Verse 11. They're inquiring what time the Spirit of Christ is indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we've got God, the Holy Spirit. He's revealing truth to these prophets. He's telling them about salvation. He's telling them about the grace of God. And, and, and all this comes, it says in verse 12, 
and these things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So the Holy Spirit, in short, inspired prophets to write the Bible, and he sent preachers to preach the Bible, and all of that's the background, and then we get to verse 13, and it says, therefore, therefore, because that's true, because God has revealed himself to prophets, and he's given us his word, and he sent people to proclaim his word, therefore, what do we need to do? You've got to prepare your minds for action. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind. He's saying you need to get that truth that the Holy Spirit has, has given, and you've got to put it into your minds. You need to build biblical knowledge. And friends, the, that's our defense. Our defense against the monster of ignorance is to build biblical knowledge. It's not just for pastors. It's a text that it's addressed to all of us. It's not a one-time thing you do in your life, but it's a constant practice throughout your life. We, none, let none of us ever say that I know enough of the Bible.